Who can say where the killer roams? When the blood flows, it's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Slay away. behind your favorite horror films, lore, gore, and every kill in between. On this episode, we're ringing in the holiday cheer with a holiday horror special featuring Gremlins, written by Christopher Columbus and directed by Joe Dante. The film was released on June 8th, 1984 in the United States. It follows a young man named Billy who inadvertently breaks three very important rules concerning his new pet Mogwai and unleashes a horde of malevolently mischievous monsters on his small town. Thanks, Dad. You're gonna like this. No, 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 don't shake it. We're gonna have to open it now. Won't wait till Christmas. Would you dim the lights, please? Dim the lights? Dad, what does it do, glow in the dark? It's important. Go ahead, open it. What is it? some Chinese word. I just call him Gizmo. Dad, it's, it's really neat. Can I pick him up, Dad? Sure, go ahead. Just be careful. Oh, isn't he cute? I hope he's housebroken. I'll bet every kid in America would like to have one of these. They might even replace the dog as the family pet. There's three rules you've got to follow. Keep him out of the light. No, no. Don't get him wet. But the most important rule, the rule you can never forget, no matter how much he cries, no matter how much he begs, never feed him after midnight. Mom, what's going on here? There's a problem with the Magwai. He's going through changes. Lots of changes. Did you feed him after midnight? excited to be talking about gremlins today and joining me are return guest ten baki who is here all the time ten welcome back hi yes i'm so happy to be back again 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 and sherry who has spoken with me before <laughs> but 
you have not heard them on this podcast yet. <laughs> a big welcome to Sherry Nunn. And also joining me for the first time is Josh Ickes. So welcome, everyone. I'm so excited to have you here. Um, are you ready to chat about horror with me today? Absolutely. Yes, let's do it. Boop, boop, boop. So I usually ask everyone as an icebreaker, how did you discover your love of horror? And can you tell everyone about what your role within the horror community is? So Ten and uh, Sherry, technically you've been here before, but Sherry, I'm going to kick it off with you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So uh, I discovered my love of horror a little bit late in life. I've talked about it a lot uh, on my podcast, but I had terrible night terrors when I was young. And so I wasn't allowed to watch anything remotely scary. And then once I kind of got over that, I just like fell in love with horror. Um, and I just kind of consumed everything that I could, whether it was books, movies, um, whatever that may be. So now I have uh, a podcast called Scaredy Cats. And we just talk about different horror movies. Um, we've started a new thing called The Haunted Library, where we talk about um, specific horror books as well. We've done a couple of interviews. So yeah, that's kind of where I fit in in the horror world. Fantastic. Josh, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Starting with, uh, I found a book at a scholastic book fair that was called Horror in the Movies. And it had a, a tombstone and I think a hand reaching out. I, I bought another copy since then, but that had stuff going clear back to the silent era and it was just fascinating to me uh and that really kind of kicked it off i used that as kind of a checklist going through my early horror education my role in the horror community is i'm a filmmaker and two of the four or five films that i've that i've shot uh have been straight up horror films um the first one was called the lashman and that was about 10 years ago. And then the most recent film that I finished was called The Reenactment. And I made that with a, a couple of buddies of mine that I do a, a podcast with about Westerns. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a great time to be a creator, I think. Oh, well put. I think it's a great time to be a creator as well. There's a lot of avenues for us to not only create content, but get it to people to consume. I kind of fell in love with horror when I was younger. When I was a kid, I used to like read like kind of anthology sci-fi horror books and stuff like that. And I remember seeing like The Ring when I was really young and it really freaked me out. But also I kind of loved it. Like I was like having nightmares and I was like, that was dope. <laughs> and then and then when I got a little bit older, I got into like special effects stuff. And I really liked like um, Dead Alive and like... Uh, reanimator and stuff like that and uh as i kind of fell back in love with horror and like my adult life i started getting into writing and specifically uh i i really like to talk about gender uh and and sexuality in horror films um i like to uh write about like different trans experiences and representation through horror and the way that we kind of the way that people show uh gender through that lens of like being scary and uh that's kind of like my main obsession with horror hey gang you're rolling with rockin ricky rialto the voice of kingston falls usa
close to Christmas. Looks like he's gonna get stuck with a lot of trees again this year. I thought I'd be seeing you about this time. Huh? Ow! What the hell is this? Pete, what are you doing in there? Don't ask. <laughs> Alex, can I get my tree? Pete, take that tree to Mr. Anderson's truck. <laughs> well, what do you say, Alex? Come on, you can spare one for the boys down at Sheriff Station. I paid for mine, Frank. I want to ask everyone, can you tell me why you love Gremlins? Sure, yeah. Um, So Gremlins is one of those movies that I saw when I was very young. Uh, You could kind of, I feel like a lot of people consider it like introduction horror kind of thing where it's like, it's scary and there's a lot of like horror elements, but it's also really funny and kind of like out there a little bit ridiculous like it's it's a little harder to be afraid of like gremlins than it is to be afraid of like a serial killer or something you know um so i think that it was one of those movies that i was able to you know feel scared and feel like excited when i was younger um and and then sort of as i grew older it became kind of like a favorite of mine that I sort of made a little tradition a few years back to watch it like on Christmas every year with like whoever I'm with. Um, And I don't know, it's just something I keep coming back to and I always enjoy it, even though it's kind of ridiculous and problematic in a lot of ways. It's just one of those movies that I, I don't know, has always been with me, I guess. So when it comes to gremlins, you like the goopy bits, right? Like I like the goopy bits in gremlins. Oh, if you yeah. like Reanimator. <laughs> oh, yeah. Who doesn't and like Dead the Alive? Part? And I know some of the films you like. I'm like, yeah, it's like, it's like gore. But then with this one, it's that other level of gore that's like, we got a PG rating because one, there wasn't a PG 13 rating at the time. And two, because, um, you know, we're using blood that's not blood and just like, bubblegum and all kinds of great special effects a lot of the effects in this film remind me of the thing oh so many reasons so as a child uh, growing up in the 80s I have a lot of nostalgia for movies like gremlins um you know there's like certain movies that just instantly take me back to being a kid and gremlins is one of them but I think more importantly it's the fact that it seems on the surface, like when you watch the trailer, you're kind of like, oh, this is going to be cute. There's this little gizmo. He's adorable. He's going to sell lots of toys. Um, and then it has that. And it's got kind of this wholesome Christmas feel at the beginning. And then it becomes something completely different uh, where you get like some really, really dark stuff happening um, while still kind of maintaining that that level of humor and lightheartedness. So it does that balance really well. Um, and Phoebe Cates is just like my hero from the eighties. So, uh, yeah, I think that's probably the main reason. And I also love the goopy bits, right? Who doesn't love the goopy bits? I'm just saying, I'm throwing it out there. (laughs) Uh, like it's been mentioned, I think it's, it's a great, like kids first introduction to horror, uh, and it's a great bridge between something like E.T. with the cute and cuddly. And then I think the uh, the gremlin eggs resemble the alien eggs from the alien series. And so if you kind of look at it as a as a continuum, you know, graduating you into ever 
more goopy and horrifying horror. Uh, I think it's a good, good middle piece there. And, you know, I think it's been great to introduce my kids to when they were young. Uh, and you can see their appreciation for practical effects and kind of all the, the fun uh, cartooniness of it that I think really goes into the background stuff, especially. When you think of holiday films, perhaps what comes to mind is It's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, or A Christmas Story. Emmeline Meredith uh, Dornman writes in an essay on the merits of Gremlins as a Christmas movie that the film is commonly contested um, as a uh, Christmas film in the Christmas canon. So the argument against it being the fact that it would be the same movie without any of the Christmas elements going on in the film and that it doesn't contain the true spirit of Christmas, whatever the fuck that is. So forgive me if you love Christmas. <laughs> I do not. I do not. Uh, but, you know, however, Gremlins does both of these things and more relying on images of Christmas for some of its most iconic scenes and uh, decreeing the current commercialism of Christmas. So I think just really that American consumerism facet of the film and that theme is part of the reason that Christmas is integral to this film. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Um, well, I just wanted to hop in. I I, uh, I think, first of all, let me just say, I think it's kind of silly when people say things like, oh, if you took the Christmas parts out of a film, it would be the same film. Because you could say that about anything in any movie. It's like, it, it just seems silly to me. Right. It, it's like, take <laughs> the lines out of Lion King and it's still Shakespeare. Okay, like, <laughs> what does that matter? Like, it's just kind of a silly thing. Just wanted to hop in and say that. <laughs> yes, I agree. And they're saying the exact same thing. Like, essentially, their essay was all about the reasons why, no, 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 you're wrong. This is a Christmas film and it doesn't matter if you take the Christmas out of it. But that element of that um, season is very important to the film and the theme of consumerism. Yeah, I would agree totally. Like when you, you when you look at particularly in the '80s, which is I think where uh, consumerism really started to ramp up, particularly at Christmas. Like I think about you know the the Cabbage Patch Kid craze, and like everybody had to have the Cabbage Patch Kid, and it just really like came together in the 80s i don't know that's not quite the right phrase but well i i agree with you there because we had such big commercial marketing campaigns targeted specifically to children watching cartoons exactly i think it was transformers transformers was specifically made to sell toys so yeah very much a thing of the 80s and i think if you took that away from the christmas setting uh when you really saw that consumerism I don't want to say flourishing because that sounds like a good thing, but running wild, I guess. Uh, I, I don't think that running it would... rampant like the girl. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I hear you on that. Um, well, the film was uh, produced at a time when combining horror and comedy was becoming increasingly popular. And Professor Noel Carroll, best known for his work in the philosophy of film and cognitive film theory, argued that. There was now a new genre emphasizing sudden shifts between humorous and horrific scenes, drawing laughs with plot elements that have been traditionally used to scare. So I thought that that was interesting. And did anyone, um, I mean, for me, horror comedies have been around for as long as I've been alive because this film came out the year before I was born. So <laughs> with that in mind, um, 
there's a lot about I think the the pokes and the satire at American consumerism within the film that are intended to be funny and I think they do hit as funny and then the horrific things are the things that uh, the gremlins are doing but it's sort of an allegory for what the American consumer does um, with Black Friday is a specific example that I will bring up there's an interesting like dual thread of both the the I think the American consumerism is seen as more modern because there's a like classical conservatism bent to this as well with the small town and the small town like banking institution um, versus the like the big store that they go to um, where all of the destructive implements come from uh, and I feel like there's uh, almost a it's a wonderful life kind of aspect to it where there's this call for normalcy and to get back to these traditional American values, not like in a, a real nationalist type of way, but more in a um, idyllic sort of nostalgic kind of manner. It's great that you brought up It's a Wonderful Life because of the fact that the opening uh, sequence to this film after we're in Chinatown when we meet Billy for the first time is actually a replication of the uh, scene in It's a Wonderful Life where he's running through the town square past the movie theater and the different shops. I wanted to circle back really quick before we got too far from it. Um, you, we, you were talking about how a new genre was kind of sputtered in the 80s, uh, like mid-80s, about um, ha- combining horror and comedy. And I think it's really interesting. I've actually never thought about this before, but um, we were talking about how this movie is a really good way to introduce younger people to horror, like uh, just kids to horror. And I think... It hadn't occurred to me till this moment, but a lot of horror prior uh, to this time period was a combination of horror and a lot of like sex and sexual things. Very like heavy on like uh, romanticizing things and having really intimate scenes and kind of the flip flop of having those horror elements and those sexual elements combined are kind of like a cornerstone of the genre in a lot of ways. And I think. And while this is not the first one to do it by far, I think having those films combine comedy instead of sex and horror um, kind of opens up the world of horror to a different audience that maybe isn't as concerned with like the sexual scenes or isn't as interested in those. Um, And maybe that's like a big part of why the genre was such a success with like really younger crowds and why like kids like you know, like Gremlins, despite it being, you know, a, a movie about killing monsters, you know, so I don't know, just something I thought of, thought I'd. That's really interesting you bring that up, because the the only other thing is I know that science fiction, before people considered some things within science fiction to be horror, um, especially the atomic age of horror, right, and, and black, some really amazing black and white films like um, them and, and, and some different things like that growing up that my dad loved as a kid. Um, and maybe it was more so young boys during that time period. But I think once it moves into the realm um, of horror comedy, in some ways it's still targeted towards younger male audiences, but uh, maybe was an easier way to bring, like you said, totally new audiences in 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because, like, you step back. It's not that this is the first film to do so, because if you step back even to Black Christmas, you know, um, which is another, like, similar kind of, like, feel uh, film in certain ways, um, it, it's very, like, Black comedy. You know, there's so many scenes in that movie that are, like, played up as jokes but also you know just this week i was talking to my friend about that film and they said that's one of the scariest films they've ever seen like and and they just balance those so well i wonder if it has something to do with the fact that when you look at the filmmakers who are making horror in the like late 70s and early 80s they would have come of age you know they would have grown up watching those 50s and 60s horror movies and then in the 70s there was kind of this proliferation of like on the edge comedy. Um, like when you look at, oh my God, Lenny Bruce, right. And uh, very popular. Um, actually, I don't think he was in the seventies regardless. <laughs> Let's back, back up. Um, like, I think maybe these filmmakers were like, I can combine these two things that are really kind of part of my cultural lexicon and put them together into something that's unique and different that we'd never really seen before. Yeah, and to your point, the 80s kind of exploded with sci-fi, whereas I feel like it was a little bit, it was like stepping away in the 70s after having been so sci-fi central in the 60s. So I could totally see it being like they grew up on those and they want to bring that stuff back. Yeah, and we have a ton of examples of that as well. So really great points. Um, Well, Fletcher Powell of the KMUW Movie Club discussed Black Friday in an episode on excess consumerism and gremlins calling its sequel the new batch a scathing indictment of the greed excess corporatism and consumerism of the 1980s there are elements of merchandising all over the film and you see it in this film as well and we see it with the shops the toys that they're playing with the comments made um from rand peltzer uh, about uh, not only his products but um you know what he has to have and you know what every kid in america will want to have and things like that which we'll talk about a little more later but it's interesting to have other people kind of spot those things if you dive a little bit deeper into that theme of the film so um in an article for black girl nerds writer Cezanne kohler in the um uh and, and this article is uh for 35 years Gremlins has warned of the dangers of cultural appropriation, so it's interesting. Um, They state that reflecting on Gremlins 35 years later reveals a surprisingly conservative message, and some of you had spoken to this previously. So this message hinges on the sometimes unhinged Mr. Futterman. Damn foreign cars, uh, Futterman fumes at Billy when Billy's Volkswagen Beetle won't start, always freezing up on you. You don't see that with American cars. You see that plow, 15 years old and hasn't given me a day's trouble in 15 years. You know why? Kentucky Harvester. It ain't some foreign piece of crap you pick up these days. Damn foreign cars. If gremlins were made today, Mr. Futterman would likely be wearing a Make America Great Again hat instead of his woolen earmuffs. So, uh, uh, Futter, excuse me, did I say Fullerman? Mr. Futterman would likely be wearing a Make America Great Again hat instead of his woolen earmuffs. So Futterman doesn't stop there, though, as Stripe and company are devastating Kingston Falls. This uh, was before social media, so it took time for the news of an attack to get around and be taken seriously. Futterman gets wasted at Dory's Pub and gives Kate, uh, who's played by Phoebe Cates, as you mentioned, a corresponding xenophobic monologue. 
Um, how do you like to bring your car in for a tune-up and find it loaded with foreign parts? Gremlins, you got to watch out for them foreigners because they place gremlins in the machinery. They put them in the cars. They put them in the TVs. They put them in the stereos, in the radios you stick in your ears. They put them in the watches. I got teeny tiny gremlins in my watches. So Kate and Billy convince him to walk home where his rant continues. Damn foreign TV, he growls. Um, I told you we should have got a Zenith. This time, though, Mr. Futterman is, is correct. There are actual gremlins on his roof messing with his antenna, and they subsequently hijack his tractor, demolish his house, and kill him and his wife. The transformed feral mogwai are indeed foreign monsters that end up raising huge chunks of Kingston Falls to the ground. Uh, torturing and murdering many residents before they are cleverly defeated by Billy Kate and Gizmo. Um, I'm wondering if there is a thread with that conservatism of uh, xenophobia that goes along with it of, uh, I mean, the original gremlins, the idea came from, I guess, World War One and World War Two pilots uh, who would say that there was gremlins in their planes and of course, you know, Correct. looking, we're going to talk about that too. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and there's, I don't know if you, anybody has seen the Bugs Bunny cartoon with the gremlin. Uh, that is, yeah, it's a classic. Um, but I feel like a lot of that stuff also has that tinge of considered fine at the time kind of racism. But now we look back and it's incredibly cringe to, uh, to deal with a lot of that stuff. And I feel like we were smoothing that out towards the eighties, but there might still be a little flavoring of it here with uh, Mr. Futterman's rants and everything. It's interesting to have this conversation. And I just want to preface by saying that I'm, I'm a white person. And so my opinion, you know, don't take it, it too much to heart, but I always thought that this film was actually saying, uh, was actually making those people look bad. Like I, I always thought it was, it was purposeful in the sense I did that, as well. I think it was intentional by Dante. Yeah. In the sense that, you know, when you talk about, um, when you talk about uh, Mr. Futterman, for example, he's blaming all this stuff on, on foreign people and, and foreign machines and foreign parts. Um, but when it came down to it, the reason that all of this mayhem happened and the reason that all these problems started is because the American people um, didn't like didn't didn't listen to the the setup, the rules. I mean, basically, it's literally like, hey, here's the rules and how to properly take care of this thing on how to do these things right and how to respect the culture of this creature. And the Americans took that and they didn't do it. They broke every single rule in like three days and they caused all this mayhem. And so <laughs> yes. I always took it as like, hey, it's not so much that it's, it's you know, the foreign people's fault. It's it's the fact that you're you're uh, you're, you're kind of, appropriating like you said like it, it's like you're taking that you're not respecting what it stands for and what it is and the power of it and you're and 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 it's you know it's being misused i guess yes definitely and we'll get into that uh with the backstory and reception of the film as well um the notion of gremlins was first conceived during the 1920s when mechanical failures in raf aircraft were jokingly blamed on small monsters so josh had uh, brought that up 
the term gremlins also entered popular culture as children's author and RAF pilot uh, Roald Dahl published a book called The Gremlins in 1943 based on mischievous creatures. And Walt Disney had actually considered making a film of it, and this was prior to the Bugs Bunny cartoon. Uh, Joe Dante had read The Gremlins and said that the book was some of the influence, um, had some influence on his film. So uh, in 1983, Dante publicly distanced his work from earlier films explaining, our gremlins are somewhat different. They're sort of green and they have big mouths and they smile a lot and they do incredibly really nasty things to people and enjoy it all the while. So the story of Gremlins was conceived by Christopher Columbus. As Columbus explained, his inspiration actually came from his loft when at night what sounded like a platoon of mice would come out and to hear them skittering around in the blackness was really creepy. So to that point, I just want to mention that while I lived in Austin, uh, my apartment, the apartment upstairs ended up with rats and I would hear them at night above my head skittering around on the floor. And it was honestly very creepy and terrifying. I didn't know what it was. I thought the upstairs neighbor had a small dog, but they were someone who was like out of town a lot uh, for work. So <laughs> once we found out what it was, um, it was just like, oh, no, worse. yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Never have I ever lived in a place that had rats before, but now I have. <laughs> I'm glad I don't live there anymore. Um, as far as the critical response goes, despite initial mixed criticism, Gremlins has continued to receive critical praise over the years and is considered by many as one of the best films of 1984. And on Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds a certified fresh approval rating of 86% based on 76 reviews. The critical consensus reads, whether you choose to see it as a statement on consumer culture or simply a special effects heavy popcorn flick, Gremlins is a minor classic. Now, I don't know if minor classic is accurate. I think it's just a straight up classic. It's a great film. It's super fun. But film critic Glenn Heath Jr. calls it a brilliantly potent social critique of Reagan era fear mongering and consumerism. So I thought that was interesting because I'm not someone who's ever really gone deep into research on the Reagan era. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street came out in 1984, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and so I don't know about the best movie of 1984. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, okay. So not, not about what Glenn said. Not but about what Glenn said, kind of, but about the, the comment of, of it being, yeah, yeah. I don't know about that. <laughs> Well, there's, yes. And then also uh, Gremlins and Ghostbusters came out on the same day. So Ghostbusters was one of my favorite films growing up as a kid. And by the end of its American screenings on November 29th, it had, uh, Gremlins, excuse me, had grossed nearly $150 million domestically. And it was like the fourth highest grossing film of the year behind Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So um, there were complaints <clears throat> from audiences about the violence depicted in the film and these complaints mostly were um presented by people who had brought their children to see the film many of whom who walked out of the theater and dante admitted to reporters later that the idea of taking a four-year-old to see gremlins thinking it's going to be a cuddly family animal movie and then seeing <laughs> that it turns into a horror picture i think people were upset they felt like they had been sold something family-friendly, and it wasn't entirely family-friendly. Now, I don't know what the TV spot looked like. I know what the original trailer looked like. But even from the trailer, you should have been able to tell that this was not a family-friendly movie to take your kids to. 
did that original trailer did it have that gremlins the the gremlin theme music when they're wreaking does havoc at the end. yeah that's <laughs> such a great tune and yeah uh just for like i said wreaking havoc that's just always what i think of uh like the yeah. bar scene i guess and... there were shorter tv spots where billy is just like opening a box and be like oh yeah so cute you know so that was the dupe yeah well jerry goldsmith i believe did the music for this film and he's a kind of iconic i think as far as like scoring films goes but uh to my understanding there was more than one original like tv spot and like trailer uh there was one where they didn't show the mogwai or the gremlins but like they just implied that he got a gift and something went wrong with the gift or they turned That's into a monster the one that i think these people saw yeah and i heard there was also another set of uh trailers at the time that were just like kind of advertising like the maugwai because they were pushing it as like a marketing thing of like oh look at this cute thing like very much Time to buy a toy. kind of ironic when you think about the <laughs> themes of the movie itself um well jumping into the legacy of the film so it uh, not only spawned the sequel gremlins to the new batch and an advertisement for british telecom but it uh, is believed to have been the inspiration for several unrelated films about small monsters which includes ghoulies troll hobgoblins and munchies so um two of those i don't know what they are of course i'm familiar with ghoulies and troll has anyone seen hobgoblins or munchies Are hobgoblins those little toys? I are, I, I might don't. be mistaken. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> I don't no know. Idea. I haven't heard of the other two films, but of course I've seen Troll. The the first Troll actually like it's ridiculous when I look at it now, but like it scared me. Um, and Ghoulies was really scary because they use that image of the ghoulie coming out of the toilet on the cover yes. of this. <laughs> and it scared me as a kid. Um. But so uh, <laughs> in music, the Scottish post uh, rock band Mogwai, which who is fantastic, uh, is named after the film's creatures uh, as for the reason why the band chose this as their name. Their guitarist, Stuart Braithwaite, has stated that it has no significant meaning and we always intended on getting a better one. But like a lot of other things, we never got around to it. Uh, and Welsh singer and songwriter Rod Thomas performs under the name Bright Light, Bright Light, uh, which, of course, is a direct quote from the film. And in January 2013, Vulture reported the Warner Brothers, uh, that Warner Brothers was negotiating with Amblin Entertainment to reboot the Gremlins franchise. So if you do look and you do a search for Gremlins in your handy dandy Google, there is going to be a result that pops up that says Gremlins 3. So uh, it is something that is coming at one point. It's been talked about a couple times um, in a 2016 interview with Bleeding Cool. Uh, Zach Galligan uh, spoke about a third film saying that Warner Brothers definitely wants it. Chris Columbus wants to do it because he'd like to undo the Gremlins 2 thing that he wasn't thrilled about. And uh, Spielberg wants to do it as well. So um, he claimed that Gremlins 3 is going to be written by Carl Ellsworth. In an interview with Slash Film in 2017, uh, and the script was written by Chris Columbus already. So his script explores the idea that has been on one fan's mind for a long time. If all the gremlins come from getting Gizmo wet and feeding his mogwai offspring after midnight, should Gizmo be eliminated? Oh, no. <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> 
So that's so dark. Yeah. <laughs> he described his group as twisted and dark. That sounds <laughs> twisted and dark. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting concept because if you go back and you think about, um, like, when we they there's been a lot of representations of like eliminating the threat, right? And even though the threat comes from something non-threatening that hasn't done anything wrong personally, like it, is that morally? It honestly sounds okay. Very much like like if that's the script, there should be people that want to protect him, and that could be like the plot because so. like. The way that the original one That's plays how Billy out comes back. Yeah, like the way that the original one plays out is like the Americans want to the Americans can't handle this thing and they can't responsibly, you know, deal with this. And so like if I think it would also be kind of interesting commentary on the United States to be like, oh, uh, they want to just destroy it, even though it's innocent, like even though instead of just taking care of it, they just want to destroy it. Like that's so like. Right. That would it's be such, such an, an interesting thing. commentary. Yeah. <laughs> so it could work, but I don't, I actually don't know about there being a third movie, but there is an animated series coming out soon. They've is been working on it. there an animated series? I had yeah. not heard about that. I, yeah. I'm aware of, you know, this whole been in process for a long time, Gremlins 3, and now there's finally a little, I think, IMDb, IMDb page. Uh, yeah it's called it's called secrets of the mogwai um it's going to be on hbo i think that like upcoming this year like 2023 um i'm almost positive very cool Gremlins is a film critiquing the obsessive nature of American society that focus on, focuses on material consumption, specifically obsessing over items from foreign markets. The obsession is so ravenous that it turns American consumers into crazed creatures who will terrorize their own cities and the people in them. And the Gremlins are essentially an allegory for that. That's, I think it's super interesting, though. Like... Uh, that uh, Gizmo puts on a Rambo bandana at the end, like the one of the ultimate signs of the eighties of uh, like American colonialism, <laughs> trying to spread the American way overseas, and that's what he has to resort to towards the end of the of the movie. Um, it just seems like another interesting thread that's in there uh, about co opting someone else's culture. Yeah, well, and he, so Gizmo, right, as a creature, is just like, oh, well, I watched Rambo, and I just thought this guy looked cool. Right? Like, this guy could take out Stripe, uh, so he gets all done up in the duds, and I think he pulls the Rambo act again in New Batch, but um, we're not talking about that film today. <laughs> so. As far as analysis goes, uh, Gremlins is a satirical look at consumerism, as we've mentioned. In a video essay, Gremlins, A Lesson in American Consumerism, this theme is further explored. At its core, it tells a story about American consumerism corrupting society. Digging deeper into this analysis, the video states that a gremlin is a scapegoat for man-made errors. Mogwai is uh, Cantonese for demon or evil spirit, and these are sort of the different things that um, are representative throughout the film. Um, it's important to view Gizmo as part of Chinese culture. 
the mogwai is a foreign-made product that Americans are desperate to own, um, and that does come up in the film. The symbolism of water in the film is an allegory for mass manufacturing. Water makes them multiply. It is symbolic of the immediate coveting that comes from other Americans when they see a mogwai and want it for their own. This is demonstrated by Pete and Rand, who specifically tries to make a profit from the creatures and says, I'll bet every kid in America would like one of these. If fed, the mogwai turn into ravenous creatures. Food represents the mass hysteria and American consumers' corruption of uh, foreign-made products. Light represents the realization that the American consumer must rid themselves of that corruption. The subtext comes alive in the final speech from Mr. Wing when he comes to, you know, pick up Gizmo after the town has gone through all of this madness. Uh, he says, you do with Mogwai what your society has done with all nature's gifts. You do not understand. You are not ready. He's implying that every American is corrupt because they damage and destroy everything they touch, even an innocent creature like Gizmo. The idea that like Americans live out of balance with um, nature and out of harmony, uh, I think that resonates. And just the idea that as a as even a small town like that, that's supposed to be steeped in American idealism that we would have some kind of, you know, reverence for the natural world and the beauty of things. And yet even that town uh, is both the, the fault of its own downfall by uh, creating the gremlins or allowing them to exist. Uh, and then the victim itself, it's kind of like that meme of sticking the stick in your bicycle spokes <laughs> and you're, you're the own, you're your own culprit for it. Yeah, I just think it's interesting, like when you look at, you know, we have Randall who is supposed to like he's he's not the hero of the movie, but he is kind of this lovable failure. Um, the first thing he does, despite knowing the rules, the first thing he does when he learns what happens when you when you get the Mogwai wet is to be like, I'm going to exploit this. Yeah. Like, the yeah. I'm going to break the rules and I'm yeah, going to exactly, exploit it for exactly. Um, And that's constantly, you always see him trying to, you know, um, make a profit somehow, even with these, these terrible inventions that don't work, like the smokeless ashtray, for instance. Um, and he thinks that, you know, this is, this is my big opportunity to make lots of money and to sell a product to, to the rest of, of the world or North America, I guess. I think what's particularly interesting that uh, Columbus and I guess Dante also kind of do in this film is they make every character kind of really unlikable in so many ways while simultaneously giving them such relatable qualities that they become likable by like a lot of the audience and i think that's super difficult to yeah. do where like even the main character you know billy i mean at the end of the day my dude take care of your animals you you knew the rules that's like being like don't give your dog chocolate well then <laughs> just this one time like no dude like well and, he but, says i double checked no it's not this shouldn't be happening <laughs> yeah. i double checked like i looked at the clock i didn't or i mean i get the water the it's like come on man like what Didn't are you doing expect it to be um i don't know shoot through or whatever but, <laughs> the, but that's the, it's the a cord, same but still 
But it's the same with all the characters. They all have these like qualities about them. There's maybe like one or two characters that they don't kind of force into like this uh, this like negative light and it's just interesting that that they're able to do that in this film because at the end i feel like general audiences like billy they they like yeah. he's the hero I think kind the of two, the two positive art characters would be kate and billy's mom lynn which is an interesting choice and kind of a commentary in itself yeah it's interesting to your point uh ten that um billy even you know, taking care of your animals. Billy takes one of the the new Mogwais to his science teacher or former science teacher to be experimented on. Like, it's not a, hey, I'm going to keep you and keep you safe. It's, uh, yeah, here, go ahead and experiment on him and figure out what's going to happen. And then they just play around with him. And it's kind of like the, like, fuck around and find out kind of thing, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> Bad stuff happens. Ugh, it's more commentary too because like yeah. if you think about the way he treats his dog which is way different than the way he treats these other Mauguai, um it's very much it's very much like it, it kind of co- connects with that theme of like oh well these are foreign these aren't from these aren't you know the same i don't have to treat these the same way and it's kind of like the just circling care, back yeah it's yeah. a good point um and i mean now it's time to you know get into the thick of uh, our favorite scenes. So Gremlins wouldn't be what it is without the incredible score by Jerry Goldsmith, as y'all mentioned, who won the Saturn Award for Best Music for the film. So let's talk about the music and our favorite scenes. Um, Ten, I'm going to start with you. What are some of your favorite scenes and bits of music from Gremlins? Sure, yeah, my favorite scenes. Um, Okay, so there is the honestly a lot of the death scenes are pretty pretty wild i like the part where (laughs) there's the automatic chair that shoots up and launches her like out of the house way up into the air listen she was like witch substitute (laughs) she was so evil there's that scene where she's on the street this is i honestly every scene with her i like because i just hate her yes yeah she's in the street and the there's like a family walk up and it's like a mom and two kids and like we're we're cold and it's christmas and we just want food and she's like well you should have paid your rent like Like, can we i think they're trying to get a little more time on their rent because they both just got new jobs they don't get paid for yeah and she says now you know what to ask santa claus (laughs) but it's like it's like okay like we know that's not how it works like come on like you know you're an adult there is no santa come on like that's so mean so i like all the scenes with her just because i hate her and i think that it's funny literally is i'll get you and your little dog too (laughs) she literally (laughs) is yes that's why she is the stand-in for the wicked witch of the west yes Um, because they also have the caroling scene at her house too it's so funny like i just they they handled her character so well Uh, what a good villain really really funny and i know sherry that you want to sing the praises of this wonderful actress that played. yeah so she's fantastic so she uh was um probably one of america's best known waitresses because she played uh flow on oh my gosh i can't i've like blanked on the name of the show uh castleberry no, sorry give me two alice thank you oh alice yes, yes. right um yeah. so uh she's just incredible and like I, I i talked about her on my podcast and how she really um 
as Anola said, like stands in for the Wicked Witch of the West in in the Wizard of Oz, uh, and just the way that she like creeps down the street and like the way she goes up to Billy in the bank and she like says something about I'm going to kill your dog and just the way she does it is deliciously evil, and I could just watch her all the time. And then you want to talk about like capitalism and uh, consumerism. All of her cats are named after like uh, forms of currency. And like, I think she has Kopech, she has dollar bill, she has ruble. Like it's just, it's fantastic. Any other ones aside from Mrs. Deagle and the death scenes, Ken? Oh my gosh. It's really honestly hard because I like this film so much. Yeah. Like I just, I, I, I think when I was a kid, it was the, the theater scene with them watching Snow White and just being bananas in the, the bar scene. Um, and also the scene in the kitchen with, uh, Billy's mom, where she just like full on destroys. Oh, so good. It's like so great. It's, it's, really fun to see lynn kicking ass and uh the microwave <laughs> oh my god all the goopy things that she does yes. with uh, these gremlins But as an adult, having watched it again, the scene that then strikes me most now is uh, Phoebe Kate's uh, Kate's monologue um, in front of the fireplace talking I'm gonna about clap her for dad. this. Yes, like give her a clap. <laughs> Phoebe, Phoebe Kate's deserved. This is like an Oscar worthy monologue. <laughs> 
Um, cause it was just so, I mean, this is, I cry when I watch gremlins cause this scene is so impactful. And, um, she gives a monologue about, uh, how she found out that Santa Claus wasn't real and no children are listening to this. So I'm not really concerned about making sure you all know that, um, Santa Claus was invented by <laughs> companies to sell things, uh, which it's like. Uh, it just plays into the whole overarching themes of this whole film. So it's great. Uh, but Sherry, uh, what about you? I have a lot of the same favorite scenes as 10, but I would also really like to highlight uh, the whole ma- hatching of the new Mogwai. Uh, so, you know, Pete um, gets them wet accidentally or gets uh, Gizmo wet accidentally. And then the water hits Gizmo there. We get this like pop, 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 pop like these little balls that apparently were balloons, like just coming off of him and they just kind of grow and grow and grow and they unfurl themselves and they have like kind of their little ears over their, they're not little ears, their ears over their eyes. And then they just kind of look around and Gizmo's reaction where he, he's so sad because he knows uh, that this isn't good. Like <laughs> nothing good is going to come. He's just kind of like exactly, bad Mogwai exactly. written all over his face. And then the cocoon scenes as well later, the the next stage of metamorphosis for, for the creatures, I think also is really good because that's the first time we get to hear that very creepy kind of gremlin sound effect from, from Goldsmith that uh, they definitely got some like dying cat noises in there and some other stuff um, along with his uh, his score. And it's really, really creepy. And it comes up again in another of my favorite scenes, which is the pool scene, (laughs) Um, which scared the shit out of me as a kid. And it's just so good. And the noises that come out of that pool, I actually have a sound bite of it because I like it so much. There's a, I would say, a trifecta of scenes, one of them being the Phoebe Cates monologue. Um, I talk about it on my show that the last 10 to 20% of a rating for me is if if the movie made me emotional in some way. Um, and that, that could be fright, that could be crying, it's something. And like you that scene that scene gets to me like it is genuinely upsetting and heartfelt and i love it um i also think the uh just the quick phone calls that the dad makes from the inventors convention there's so many little jokes going on in the background of like this doctor who looking guy with a hat that uh, has these arms that's like doing other stuff for him and uh, there's a time machine in the background and the time machine disappears in between um, cutaways. When they cut back to it, the time machine is gone. And the guy who was running it is like looking around, like where the hell did it go? Um, and for the creepy scene, uh, and I'm surprised no one has brought up the, the science class yet. Um, that's, that's one of the moodiest little weird pieces of this movie. Um, and I think one of the most, like 
actually frightening uh, when the whole class leaves and then the teacher is just there with it. And, and they're it's... watching a video on like heart surgery and he leaves the lights off, you know, because he's looking for the gremlin, right? But the it's funny that the heart surgery scene is left up on the screen behind him as he's moving around looking for the gremlin with the Snickers bar. Yeah, it's like it's um, commenting on the scene, uh, the whole science experiment aspect that the the science teacher puts that that poor creature through. Yeah, I do like when Billy comes into the science classroom looking for the teacher and um, he he sees the teacher. I don't really like the placement of the the deceased teacher and, and the shot in the butt doesn't make sense to me. I think it's a supposed to be a joke for something else but i don't quite know what it references well i think it was day. just like because he stabbed the experiment the, thing, yeah right? the mogwai okay. with us he used a needle with the mogwai so the mogwai was like well i'm gonna stab okay. you with so that's the needle what, that's what it is then it's just sort of a like fuck you you want to poke me with needles <laughs> at least that's what and, i thought yeah that makes sense i was i think it's i'm just like not seeing it in my head but um the the other part is when Billy like is shocked and he goes to reach for the phone and all we see is just a green clawed hand reach up and yeah scratch that's so him. good and then like the yum yum and he grabs the teacher's apple right <laughs> like that's such a great moment um and then we still don't see the gremlin yet because I think that Billy rushes out of there but he says they he calls his mom and says they've hatched to get out of the house right? yeah well because the gremlin like you don't see it but you see like the cabinet doors opening and then a hole get ripped uh -huh. in the wall but then you never you actually see, yeah, see it when he when he when he runs like over to another side of the classroom i know that it jumps out of the cabinet and you see it for a moment yeah um, um full-bodied but it's the use of puppets too i think just uh worked out really well from a, the, that practical effects perspective and um they still look so real to this day <laughs> I think it's interesting that we were all talking about Kate's monologue scene so much because I read online that uh, that like the producers, including Spielberg, like didn't want that scene in the movie. They thought it was like way too dark. Too much of a bummer. Yeah, but then I guess Dante was like, "No, you get you don't get it. Like this is the movie. The movie is like, oh, this is like so ridiculous and so outlandish, but and like almost funny, but it's also like." not it's like terrifying and it's like emotional it's real you know and i think it's interesting that like you know obviously they trusted him enough to leave it in the movie but i think it's interesting that like so many people were like i don't know about that scene and like here we are you know uh jesus 40 almost years later is that right yeah. <laughs> um and we're all talking about how great that scene is like it's a good scene dante talks about props the, the the presence in her like he fell down the chimney because he was dressed as Santa and he had his arms were full of presents. Like, how are you climbing down a chimney with your arms full of gifts? Yeah, it's just another it's, comment like, on the consumerism, yeah. really. If you think about it, it's like, oh, it yeah, is. well, he died trying to, like, take part of this sham that is Christmas. It's very, like, this movie, as much as it is, as it is a Christmas movie, is, like, anti-Christmas and anti-capitalism so much. Yeah, it's interesting because it's a lot deeper than it is on the surface. Um, and I've never ta before taken time to really dig in and analyze it. So this has been a fun conversation. Um, as far as body count goes, five people died for sure. Okay. And it is uh, Mrs. Deagle, the Futtermans, and... <sighs> oh, nope. Six people. Six people <sighs> for sure. 
in my opinion. <laughs> now, before that, we're not counting the sequel. The sequel doesn't exist yet. So, um, <laughs> what? <laughs> there's two police officers in a police car that explodes outside of Mrs. Deal's house because the gremlins get in the machine and mess with their car and run it into a like hole or whatever and mrs deagle flies out the window we have the teacher and then the futtermans that's six okay what about all of um what about all of uh mrs deagle's cats because like no one was there to take care what of them what are you talking about they didn't count <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry but in this instance the domesticated pets are not being counted in the body. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I'm just teasing. I, I'm trying to think. I feel like there was more implied mm -hmm. deaths with like I think all there, the calls there to the are, station. But the ones I think I can, because we had a conversation about this with Sherry the other day about like, well, who actually dies because then the sequel comes along and a bunch of yeah, people they are totally alive still. It. <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, we thought were dead. Um, so for this, I'm like, well, there's at least six that I'm pretty positive about. Is there any any beyond the ones I mentioned that you think or think happened? It's like I said, the only ones that I that really know of is like when they're at the police station and they start answering phone calls. They're like, oh, this is happening. Oh, this is happening. Oh, Yo, no. yeah. Like, I, I assume a big chunk yeah. of that town is gone. But I don't actually think it's shown that anyone's died. Uh, also. Uh, yeah, no, I guess or maybe if anyone was at the movie theater, like, or were they closed? Oh, when like, it burned down. Yeah, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of scenes that, like, that's a great they don't scene. Show just watching anyone. Snow White go up in flames. Yeah, very cool. I love. Um, although I love most films that have a movie screen that just like, as it pulls back because it's being burnt to a crisp, like the screen kind of. Do you think that's uh, a commentary on Disney's like? I was capitalistic just kind of that. like nature and like. <laughs> I mean, I and the fact that Disney initially wanted to option that book, right? That's interesting. And I, I assume that Dante knew about it because he had read the book as well. Yeah, I don't know. Just the thought. I have never thought about it until this moment. No, but good, I mean, it really burns down. And the fact that the gremlins love it because the gremlins represent this like toxic kind of like thing that's like, <laughs> you know, so I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I could I can definitely see that um and i hadn't thought about it before and snow white and the seven dwarves is one of the first animated features that disney ever released i think it might be the very first i think it was the first full length yeah chris columbus when he was writing it this was never supposed to be a movie right like it was supposed to be just hey i want to show off my writing skills and here's the script so people can look at it and and i'll write other movies for them but then steven spielberg just like fell in love with it got his hands on it was like we need to make this movie um, so I love that because just the idea that this, if Steven Spielberg hadn't seen this, we might never have seen Gremlins uh, because it was only supposed to be a spec script. And then the other one is that once they decided on puppets for the Gremlins, the they cost so much and they were so valuable that anybody leaving the set for the day had to uh, get their their cars and stuff checked to make sure that they weren't smuggling out any Gremlins puppets. <laughs> Oh yeah, I absolutely yeah, would. Point, I'm like, please, I, I really every time there's a new NECA toy that is Gremlins, I always am looking and it's always sold out. I can't get it. I I love Gremlins and I have a ton of Gremlins merchandise. And this isn't a fact toy necessarily. So you're, saying, you're saying that I need to 
care. Like when I'm at, when I come visit someday, I have to like try not to steal your gremlin shit. <laughs> it's not that much. I have a couple things, um, but no. But this isn't like a factor necessarily. It's just kind of my favorite piece of merchandise that I have, um, and I think it kind of is sort of ironic and a little bit prevalent to a lot of conversations we had. Um, they did a series of. Um, there's this thing uh, that that was very popular in the 70s and 80s with uh, for children, which was uh, read-along vinyl. So you would put on a record, and it would come. The record packaging would have a storybook in it, and it would read along like the story. So I have like all the Disney ones. You have like Snow White, and you have like. Um, cinderella and stuff and you read the story as the record plays and it reads the story with you it was like to teach children to read and i have one for gremlins i have them there's there's like a whole series there's like four or five and i have all of them and it's the whole movie plot front to back and it's like a read-along story booklet for kids and i think it's so funny that we were talking about how this movie is like kind of weirdly for kids but not for kids i just think that it's so interesting that they made that product it's like it's trying to prevent kids from becoming the next generation yeah a cautionary of- tale <laughs> yeah consumers yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you know totally yeah no and so i just thought i'd share that's my favorite merchandise that i have from the movie or from the 80s you, like question your <laughs> yeah. parents yeah uh, i was saying on my podcast that's that cool. i took um i took a gizmo funko pop uh, to Spain with me, and I have all kinds of pictures of Gizmo just doing random things. Um, oh yeah, let me yes, know when we're yeah. gonna see those. I will for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited to see those. Uh, well, so I know that um, the original rough cut of the film apparently was two hours and forty minutes long. What? And what? An hour and forty-three minutes. Now? I feel like what. Oh my god, yeah. they cut out an hour? Where I need to watch this. <laughs> right? I mean, you should just contact Joe Dante and be like, where's the rough Yeah, cut? I'll just shoot him a text really quick. I'm going to text I mean, him right now. I mean, you can now. shoot him an email. I'll email anyone if I'll I can I'll just text him. Email. He's my homie, actually. No, that's not true. <laughs> Dante? <laughs> no, that's not true. Hey, Joe, we just wanted to see if we could watch the rough cut of this film. I thought it was interesting that Jerry Goldsmith did do the soundtrack or the score for Alien as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if they if they had that thought some influences from Jerry yeah coming in I mean I know he did Poltergeist and that's how he ended up on this because of Spielberg um and Poltergeist but um I actually I didn't read that uh previously so good point that's really interesting um trying to think if there was anything else we go i gotta go way down real quick i like looking at the trivia notes that are um only for if you want spoilers <laughs> um let's see here's something oh yeah I, I want a gizmo like a real one i want a real magwai like as a pet <laughs> that's all i wanted to say i just want a little okay guy. so you are the american consumer but hear me <laughs> ready out. to fuck up the out. world no but hear me out i would take care of them and they can hang out with me we'll start a band i mean i believe in your ability to they're singers <laughs> they can play consumer. keyboard and they play <laughs> instruments consumer. too like gizmo plays the trumpet at one point yeah <laughs> well yeah we'll what start would a your band, band. come on oh man oh shit sorry to put you on the spot uh, <laughs> damn 
<laughs> yeah. No, you did. You did. Uh, <laughs> just I don't know. Uh, maybe. Uh, yeah, that's tough. Honestly, I found a factoid. The gizmos. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> the I found a factoid that says after Lynn Peltzer stabs the gremlin to death in the kitchen, there's an unused effect of the gremlin trying to pull the knife free from its body. The effect was considered too distressing and it got omitted. However, you can see it over her shoulder as she microwaves the other gremlin. So it's like it, it actually still it didn't get omitted from the background. Of the right. Scene. So they omitted that but left the microwave scene. Interesting. I, I mean, I think it was just like the knife in and out gesture that they. Okay. But, okay. I mean, to me, I was like, this is like the exploding dog urban oh yeah and apparently roger ebert was very concerned about that microwave scene uh because he thought that kids might think hey i can put my dog in here and see what happens oh yeah hopefully that didn't happen um i don't think we have any news reports of kids trying to microwave i mean i did microwave some i did that too but uh, like doritos bag <laughs> i'm too afraid to look up and see if there's any news reports don't of this do it. I'll just be sad. Like, oh it do didn't it. end well for that gremlin i'm not gonna do it to my dog but i mean yeah uh, I don't kids know. can be terrors <laughs> uh the chainsaw so i had actually 10 you'll like this i don't know if you know i had told sherry previously that the chainsaw sequence and scene in the climax of the film is actually an homage to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Joe Dante has specifically called that out. Which is sort of a hilarious tie-in to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because Toby Hooper was actually inspired by just, like, the consumerism and other things going on at the time and like he wanted he had he saw these chainsaws right at the mall and in that moment he thought about how great it would be just to like mow down all of the obnoxious and awful shoppers around him so the fact that that's an homage to to Hooper is just like really really great I had no idea I mean it makes sense there's this whole film, I said this earlier, it feels like Chris Columbus and Joe Dante just kind of wanted to homage so many things. It's very All much like loved. it's sort of like yeah. when you get parodies for it really films. is a parody. It really is in so and many instead ways. Instead of just being horror films like uh scare package has done it it's um really everything that they love so that's exciting yeah and i think it's i think it's really a testament to their ability that they were able to take parodies of so many things but also create such a strangely unique and original film instead of just like a copy of a copy or like a rehash because they did it in a tasteful way um you know if you look at something like uh, that's more obvious you know um like um gosh hold on my brain uh night of the creeps or something where like all the nods are like so obvious that it's like okay you're you know you're you're tipping your hat a little too much here but with gremlins it's like it becomes its own original kind of beast and i think that's really cool it's like a where's waldo type of situation yeah like what is that from (laughs) Um, but that's kind of fun like every time you watch it you can probably find something new um 
So let's get into our bloody knife ratings. Okay. So bloody knives is, is a great <laughs> a tool for this movie. It feels almost out of place because it's such like a fun movie. Um, I, I have to give this five out of five bloody knives. It's one of my favorites. I watch it every year. It, it meant a lot to me as a kid. It got me into a lot of horror films. Um, it's funny. It's use of black comedy still to this day sticks with me. It's commentary on American consumerism, on capitalism, on xenophobia. It's such an interesting film. Um, And despite it's like areas where it's like bordering that problematic, like I think Josh used the word cringy aspect of this era. In the end, I think that it it really stands uh, up against those things. And I think that's kind of cool, you know, 40 years later to still be looking at it that way. Um, I think the acting is, is great. I think that uh, the cast is a plus. I think that uh, Phoebe Cates was one of my first crushes ever. I love gizmo. I love the iconography of this film film everything about it works for me uh there are very few changes i would make and because of all of that i i yeah five out of five for me it's a favorite and it always will be uh that is really hard to disagree with any of what (laughs) you said follow this is why i said (laughs) you can just say agreed 10 this is exactly what i think no you don't have to do that (laughs) it's uh, it's true though it's such a good and it's one of those that um, since I watched it when I was so young and it was like in a pre-critical phase, right? Like you just kind of unabashedly love everything up until one movie breaks your heart and you realize that movies can suck. But this was not the movie that did that for me. And every time I watch it again, just yesterday when I was rewatching it, I was like, oh shit, you know what movie I could watch all the time? Gremlins. I could just watch Gremlins whenever because it's so excellent and it's got heart and it's fun and exciting and and you know gizmo's real cute and uh phoebe cates is real cute and zach galligan's real cute (laughs) like there's nothing wrong with any of that and uh, i think it's always a good time at the movies so yeah five oh boy Uh, I'm just going to echo everything that 10 and Josh both said, uh, five out of five. I think you can watch this movie on so many levels. You can watch it just, you know, to watch a cute, uh, little creature and the terrible things that happened to him and his, uh, family, I guess, but you can watch it on a deeper level as well and see so much to it. I have, as I mentioned, a lot of nostalgia for it. It just like is a warm hug for me to watch despite the darkness and the gooey, gooey center. Um, But other than that, I don't have much else to add to what 10 and Josh said. Like they both summed it up perfectly. So I echo a lot of what 10 said and Josh as well. However, I, as Sherry knows, <laughs> I rated the film a four, like a solid four, because for me, I couldn't give it a solid five. I'm just and kidding. it was based on, <laughs> yeah, I know, it wasn't based on the acting. It wasn't based on the screenplay or the scares or the gore. It was based on some technical elements and the fact that the film drags a bit in the first half. I mean... 18 out of 20 is still a sorry 19 out of 20 is still a very solid score right (laughs) 
I was like, it's still a good score. And I think it's a great film. And it's still one I always love to watch every year around the holidays. For me, it's just more of a four. So four bloody knives. Hmm. Stick them all in there. Get the gremlin. It seems like our average is five then. (laughs) Yeah, the average is still like 19. I'm just teasing. 4.5. Actually, not even 4.5. But I don't go. I don't do a bunch of like halves and all these different oh, things it's yeah. too much work so um yeah i think the consensus for us is uh we love this film we encourage everyone to watch it it's a great holiday flick and while um there is a lot of deeper meaning there if you take the time to analyze it you can also just watch this on the surface level and have a great time um so thank you everyone for joining me on slay away to talk about all things gremlins i've really enjoyed having you on and I hope everyone can join me to discuss another film in the future. 